uh, here, so good time to be here. I know several of you are getting ready to uh, probably go skiing afterwards. Anyone going to go check out that white fluffy stuff? Well, yeah, there's a couple. Um, we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of John this morning. We're uh, uh, in a series in the Gospel of John that we're walking through. Turn to John 16 if you have your Bible or an app or whatever it is that you use. If you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, we got some gentlemen here who'd love to let you uh, borrow one of ours. If you don't own one, you can take one of ours, but just raise your hand and uh, the ushers will uh, just keep your hand up there and the ushers will hand you a Bible. Um, like I said, turn to John chapter 16. I just want to mention a couple things, make you aware of a couple things before um, we <clears throat> get in the message. One is um, uh, today's the last day to sign up for the marriage uh, conference that we're doing. We've got child care for, for that for you with kids. Um, we got a great time planned uh, with uh, Paul David Tripp uh, video series that we're going to do, four sessions. We are, uh, someone has offered to pay for Full Belly Deli, so we're going to order a sandwich for you uh, and uh, hook you up with that. You get to actually pick the sandwich that you want that morning. A continental breakfast for you and child care and all of that. So we want to encourage you to come. One of the needs that we have, if for some reason you, you don't want to come to the conference but you want to serve, we do have uh, a little bit of a need for the child care portion. So if you want to help out with the kids, you can contact me or Pam at the office uh, or my wife, if you know who, who that is, um, and uh, you can let her know and we'll, we'll get you connected. And then <clears throat> um, we are sending a team here uh, within a few weeks to Mexico to join with So Ministries. So Ministries is... Um, an organization led by Travis and his wife. Uh, it stands for Serving Orphans and Widows. And we got a team going down there to build some houses for some widows and some kids and, and to um, do a bunch of repairs and, and, uh, and all of that. They're going to be down there for a few weeks. And we have a $5,000 need to help cover their costs for construction uh, and some of those things. So if, if uh, you're looking for an area to help financially, that would be an area just put in your check. Uh, on the memo there that it's for so and uh, or Mexico trip and we'll make sure it goes uh, towards them and then of course as Brad mentioned we've got Easter coming up and so we should be excited for Easter everyone said Amen. Easter's kind of a big deal for uh, for a church and for a Christian and we all know we say it every year there's going to be people here uh, who have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ or maybe you have had a bad experience with the church and we want you to number one please be praying Pray that um, God would speak clearly uh, through uh, the sermon and, and that God would be glorified and people would come to Jesus. We've got a Good Friday service, which is going to be super awesome, and communion there uh, at the Good Friday service. And that, that Good Friday service, we really kind of designed that a little bit more for those of you who are believers and, and a, a time to be introspective and, and a time, in a sense, to leave heavy-hearted that, that Jesus, the Son of God, has died. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate that he is not dead, but he has been risen, and he's risen indeed. And so we want you to pray that people would come and hear the message. We want you to invite people. That's why we've given you those cards. So we've, as Brad mentioned, we've been a little bit more intentional to make those cards usable so when you give them to somebody, you can let them know, hey, Sierra Bible Church offers some of these great uh, experiences and, and, and a chance for you to, to know who God is. And so take that card Go to someone that is a friend of yours, a coworker, and and uh, hand them out. And then we're also going to uh, provide posters in the back. We've got some posters, and we want to encourage you to take those to your uh, favorite restaurant or your favorite uh, workplace, which is hopefully where you work, and um, 
hang them up, hang them up. And so um, we've already done, we've already hung a couple up around town, but we want to get the word out. We want to pray because we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Uh, and so with that said, we have a tradition at Seer Bible where we honor God's word because it's beautiful and it's his speech. And I would ask you to stand with me as we read from John 16, verse 16. <clears throat> John chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while, and you'll not see me again, and a little while you'll see me, because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to, so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for the joy of that human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your ears, and I'm sorry, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 26. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. And everyone said? Amen. You may be seated. Sorrow and joy. Sorrow and joy. It's kind of the really the, the theme of what Jesus is talking about here. He mentions the word sorrow, and he says that that sorrow in verse 21 will turn to joy. <clears throat> to define sorrow, sorrow is defined as deep distress caused by loss, disappointment, grief, misery, pain, or suffering. And then joy, on the other hand, joy is defined, uh, or the way at least we've defined it as a church as a whole, by the word buoyancy. That word buoyancy is the ability, if you will, to stay afloat on the troubled waters of life. It's a word I think that, that, that it well describes kind of when you're going through suffering as a Christian, you have an ability to kind of stay afloat of those troubles. Uh, in fact, Tim Keller has this beautiful way of describing um, the, the idea of grace and sin. And he says, grace and sin, the preaching of grace and sin within the gospel is like a boat. 
It's like the ballast of a boat, he says. In order for a boat to, to float, there needs to be a certain amount of weight beneath the boat and a certain amount of weight above the boat. And with that balance, the boat will float. And within the gospel, uh, Keller kind of says it this way. You've heard it before, uh, and it's great to, to repeat it, I think, because it, we need to drive this home, that, that, that you are more sinful than you could ever think or imagine. Your heart is dark. I heard one pastor this week say it this way. He said, uh, one thing that we should never say is follow your heart. Because the Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? To follow one's heart in a sinful sense would be to, to follow after your own carnal flesh and your own ideologies and your own wants and your own desires and selfishness. He says that, that's the bottom of the boat, but the top of the boat as though you are more sinful than you could ever think or imagine, you are more loved and cared for than you could ever dream of. And Jesus shows that love for us on the cross. That is a buoyancy. It's a joy. In fact, this idea of joy, as I was studying it this week, I came across uh, this beautiful passage, Proverbs chapter 8. And if you have time, you should go to it and read it. But what we're basically told in Proverbs chapter 8 is that God himself frolicked, is the original Hebrew word there, is the best to describe it. He frolicked. He danced at the creation of mankind. Proverbs 8 describes God creating, and in that creation, he was so filled with joy to create man that it was as if he danced. Right? One of my favorite things is to go to weddings and see people dance who should not dance. <laughs> a buddy of mine actually posted a video of him dancing at a wedding this weekend, and uh, I texted him and I said, whoever said white people should not uh, dance or cannot dance, Sure was correct about you, my friend. Shouldn't be on the dance floor. But there's something about, right, a, whether it's been a few drinks that have caused you to do it or whether it's just the joy of the wedding, you get out on the dance floor and people who normally shouldn't have so much joy dancing do, and there's something definitely joy-filled about that. I don't know if you think of God that way, but our God is a frolicking, dancing, joy-filled God. Joy is at the center of the Christian faith. And he tells us here, though, that we will have sorrow, and your sorrow will lead to joy. That which makes you sorrowful, he says, will lead to joy. For those of you who've uh, had the ability to give birth to a child, you know what Jesus is talking about in regards to that which causes you sorrow will be the actual thing that brings you joy. I've been in the delivery room four times. Now, I have not contributed much to those four times. I've shared that with you. You know this. Those of you who are men, you know you haven't contributed anything. And um, two of the times, my wife was able to get an epidural, and two other times, she decided to do it natural, which to me is just mind-boggling because whenever I've gone in, I actually have looked at the doctor and said, I'll take the epidural, please. <laughs> I don't want to experience this. I don't know if I want to be here. It's very stressful. And then, of course, all the ladies look at me and say, you're ridiculous. And um, the last one was with our youngest, our son David. He's a year and a half now, and because he was the fourth baby and what have you, the, he came fast. And so we went into the delivery room, and, and she told the doctor, she said, give me the epidural. She was mentally prepared to do this with as little pain as possible. And so the doctor checked her, and he said, nope, there'll be no epidural. He's coming right now. There's no chance. And I remember seeing her just, just like, no. 
she was mentally prepared to not deal with it, and now she was being told, prepare, he's coming now. And of course, the, the little bit of encouragement that I could muster up, and I looked at her and said, we can do this. I'm pretty sure the, wor- the word we was the problem in the sentence. But nonetheless, in all of that pain that she went through, in each one, it was immediately forgotten the moment that the baby was on her chest and her arms. The sorrow, the pain, now, the thing that brought the sorrow is now the thing that brings the joy. And it's not that, ladies, you know, if you've done this, it's not that the pain has just dissipated and gone and disappeared. It's not as if uh, th- that all of a sudden uh, the, the experience is completely over with. There isn't. In fact, the pain may last quite a while, but still yet the child, the thing that caused the pain, overshadows, is overshadowed by the great joy of the new life in your home. I was trying to think of an example. As I usually come to uh, the study table, or my desk is in the back, um, in the back room here, when I come to study, I, I take, first of all, a, a kind of a logical approach to studying. And when you take a logical approach, you, you typically can only use that logical side of your brain, not the creative side, not the artistic side, but the side that is kind of systematic. I want to make sure that I'm teaching God's truth, and when I teach God's truth, that it's true, right? I don't want to say something up here that's not true, especially as a pastor. That'd be bad news. And... Um, I was trying to think of, of an example, a picture, which I do at the end of the week. So I take a logical part in the beginning of the week. Near the end of the week, after I've done the logical side and the systematic side, I start to try to think creatively. How, what kind of story, what kind of analogy, what kind of metaphor could be used? And sometimes they come from personal life. Sometimes they come from, from some other example. And I was struggling this week to think of something that was sorrowful that turned to joy in my own life and as an example. And all I could think of really was sorrow. And it wasn't until this morning, while I was taking a shower, that that the example of sorrow turning to joy in my own life came alive. I want to share it with you. So when I was 12 years old, this is the heavy side. When I was 12 years old, I I I would take the same journey home from school to go home which was uh, right above 7-Eleven by the high school, if you know where that is. There's some homes back there. And I, I grew up there, basically. And, uh, <clears throat> and down, as I took the journey home, I would go through 7-Eleven to, to get some, you know, a drink or a Coke or whatever it is through 7-Eleven and, and pass through there and then go home. And on that journey, in the corner of what is now Tacos Alisco was a bar. It wasn't always a taco place. It wasn't always a Mexican food place. It was a bar. And I would take that journey, and I would pass that bar every single, uh, basically every single school day. And it was that, it was that particular day, a, vi- a very vivid day. I was hanging out with my friend after school. We were walking home. I passed the bar, and a gentleman called my name and said, Jesse, as I walked by the bar. And it was an old buddy of my biological father. And he said, did you hear about your old man? And I said, no. And he said, oh, he shot his old lady. He's in prison. He's been arrested. Just thought you should know. And 12 years old, I was confused, I was hurt, I was filled with sorrow. I went home and uh, asked my mom about it. She knew, she was very upset, she didn't want me to find out that way. She wanted to control uh, the, the way that it was described to me that my dad went to prison. But that's how I was told, very cold, very callous, very matter-of-fact, and, and th- no comfort, no, just, just sorrow, just sorrow. And that period of, of my life was 
corresponding with my dad in prison and, and all of that. It was a very difficult time, very emotional time, because in my head, even though I was 12, and I had at the time a good stepfather, my parents got divorced when I was two, and I still thought somehow God was going to bring the two of them together. It's still in my mind, there was something about biological dad, biological mom. I didn't really know that the brokenness was that bad, but God was going to fix it all. And so this was kind of a dissipation of that. That's just not going to happen. Now, that's the heavy side. Now, the, the light side, which, which, forgive me for it being kind of ridiculous, but this is the reality of how I think God works sometimes. I, uh, we have a guy here that many of you know. His, his name's Jim Mathias. And Jim Mathias is basically, we pay him to do all the janitorial work around the church. He does a lot of the, the cleanup every week. And he's always telling me, tell the ministries to help out. Tell the ministries to help out because I am putting tables away and I'm picking up trash. And, but he, he tries to make this place look dialed in for Sundays so we can worship Jesus. And he came to me last year and he said, hey, can I get a raise? And I said, well, what do you, what do you mean you, can you get a raise? And he said, can you just take me out to lunch once a week? And I was like, Yeah. I do that. I like hanging out with a guy. And so the one place we go every single week is Tacos Alisco. The same building that was once a bar in my vivid memory, which was an example of pain and suffering and sorrow, is now the place I go every week to have fellowship, to talk about Jesus, and to have carne asada nachos. (laughs) God takes your sorrow and turns it into blissful joy. Now, I know it seems, seems somewhat maybe cheesy, no pun intended. <laughs> He's good. Our, our pastor's a funny guy. Um, <laughs> so stupid. So um, at any rate, the, the, this, that journey there and being there, as little as it is, it reminds me that God takes the dark, takes the bad, takes the evil, takes the depression, takes the struggle and all of the pain, and he has an ability to turn it into something joy-filled. And he's taking these moments to share with his disciples before going to the cross, I will take your pain and I will turn it into joy. We're told multiple times in Scripture that our God is a God of comfort. 2 Corinthians says He is the God of all comfort. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, that He comforts the depressed, the downcast. And we're told in addition to that that we should have hope and sorrow. In fact, Jesus says seven times in the passage, a little while, a little while, a little while. Those are important words. This is the systematic part of studying. You, you look for these things and you go, well, what is he saying? Why does he keep saying a little while? Why are the disciples asking, what does it mean by, by a little while? And he's telling us these, these pains, these sufferings, they are but a little while. They're small, they're minute, they're nothing. This is, comes in the form of Psalm 42, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 says, Surely there's a future and a hope. You won't be cut off. God promises time and time again that there's something beyond this life. See, where is your hope? When, when, when things go bad and, and you've had a time of sorrow, whether that was in, in the past or whether it's right now or whether you know it's coming, where is your hope? Because if it's in just the the few years you have here, you're going to be disappointed. In fact, Revelation 21 tells us about a new heaven and a new earth. And it gives us this beautiful description, again, of a wedding, of a bride, and God being the groom, us being the bride adorned in white. And it says this, 
He will dwell with them, God. He will dwell with his people, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you hear the intimacy? I'm sure many of you have shed tears for some reason or another. And the Bible tells us that that he will actually be the one who removes your sorrow from your cheek. My little girl, she's just the most precious thing. She's right at that perfect age, you know, just a beautiful little princess, and she doesn't speak English all that well yet because, you know, she's still learning it, and it just makes her even that much sweeter. And when she gets an injury, it is the end of the world for her every time. She has this red little mark. It might be a freckle, but she's convinced it's a wound And every day for the last several days, she has come up to me and said, Daddy, look. She's just so depressed about it. I said, you want Daddy to kiss it? Yeah. And then I kiss it, and then she forgets all about it until she sees it again. And then she comes back for another kiss. There's this this comfort that, that my daughter receives when she's in sorrow and pain, and she comes to dad, and we're told that in that same kind of intimate manner, God himself is the one that we run to. And he goes on and he tells us in Revelations that not only will we remove the tear from your eye, he'll be the one who does it himself, that death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, and the former things, even snow-blowing snow, will pass. No shoveling in heaven. I looked up to the heavens this week and said to the Lord, why do I live here? And he said, I was called, and I said, I will be obedient. Sorrow, we're also told, it produces something for us as Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 says this, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You do not understand the gospel fully until you can call your suffering in this earth and define it the way Paul does. This light, momentary affliction. This is a man who is saying this on the heels of being imprisoned, on the heels of being almost stoned to death, being left for dead, for being persecuted, for being on house arrest, being arrested. This is a man who has gone through it all. And he looks and he says, it's just light and momentary. You don't understand the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, the future and the hope until you're able to look at your pain and your depression and your sorrow and your injury and your sickness and your ill until you can look and say, it's light and it's momentary. I've got just a little bit of time on this earth to glorify God, but then there's the next millennia ahead of me. See, the gospel is the promise that this life isn't the only life that we have. I don't find it to be coincidental I trust the sovereignty of God. I, I trust the providence of God. For us to, a few weeks ago, to have celebrated the death of a Billy Graham. Right? I think there was that quote where Billy Graham said, when I die, and people say, or some long lines of, when people say I'm dead, don't believe a word of it. I'm alive and well. And then you have a great scientist who just recently passed away. 
contrast. We have a God of contrast. Stephen Hawking, who just passed away, basically said this. He said, we are just an advanced monkey. That's hopeful. <laughs> and in that quote that I read, he, he, at the end of it, he says, he says, but we are special because we have the ability. Listen, we, we're special because we have the ability to understand it. What? Do you know no one is celebrating that Stephen Hawking is dead? Because if you're a Christian, you weep because you know where he is. And if you're not a Christian, well, he just doesn't exist. He's gone. There's no hope. In fact, listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says. For godly grief, for godly grief produces something. It produces repentance and to salvation without regret. And then it says as a contrast, our God of contrast, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, whereas godly grief produces death. If you notice in the passage from me reading it, there is grief for the godly and there is grief for the worldly. For the godly, that is a Christian, it produces something in you. For the one who does not know Christ, it only produces death. Where would you rather your grief be used for? This is the God of hope that we serve. He's the God of all comfort. And he tells us, you're going you're gonna to suffer. You're going to go through something. It's going to be hard. But do you want to go through it knowing I'm with you and there's a hope? It's just a little while. And then our God is not just a God who teaches us that he turns our sorrow into joy. He's a God who actually shows us this. In the Gospel of John and the rest of the Gospels, we see that he had compassion for those who were hungry. He had compassion for two different blind men, compassion for the lepers. He had compassion for the leaderless in Mark 6.34. He had compassion for those who lost loved ones. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is Jesus wept, and it was when Lazarus died. He exhibited that, that he was willing to step into people's suffering, into people's pain, fix that, and turn it to joy. Could you imagine what it would have been like for a man who has never seen to see again? We can't even imagine what that kind of joy would be like. This is why we sing that great song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, right? It's amazing. It's beyond anything that we can comprehend. And now here, in this passage, he's spending his last hours stepping into the sorrow of his disciples, and he's about to die. And instead of receiving comfort from his disciples, he's comforting them. One pastor says, because of his perfect and complete love for the disciples, Jesus selflessly spent much of his final night with them, comforting them in their sorrow. Actually, they should have been comforting him as he faced the ordeal of the cross, now only a matter of hours away. They should have also been glad for him since he was returning to his place of glory at the Father's right hand. Instead, characteristically viewing events from their own self-centered perspective, the disciples were overwhelmed with grief and their sense of impending loss. And yet here he is, he's comforting them. The reality of all of this is that we are basically told and taught through passages in the Bible and through the reality of the Bible that all of us will have tribulation and all of us will have sorrow. Verse 33, if you notice, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. That almost sounds worse than trouble, doesn't it? The word tribulation, it's got a heaviness to it. 
One pastor says about the world, he says, we mourn, us as the people, we mourn, we ache, we weep, and we we walk alongside those who mourn, ache, and weep. We plod through the valley with hearts heavy laden, grieving for any one of a thousand reasons, our depressed children, our distant spouses, our dashed hopes, our deceased loved ones, our ruinous sin. Sometimes we cry because life's sorrows have become chronic, filling our life like an unwelcome house guest who just won't leave. Other times we cry because of some unexpected misery. It lands like a meteor and carves a crater in our soul. And still other times we cry and we don't quite know why. Grief evades description and analysis. In fact, many in history, the the Puritans used to actually call this world a valley of tears. That we were going to suffer. And we see that in this suffering, that we see the disciples, they're confused. What do you mean a little while? In, in, in a reality, the reality of suffering in this world is, it's perplexing, is it not? Has anyone ever gone through a particular kind of suffering and looked to the heavens and said, I completely understand this? <laughs> Has anyone ever looked at your own sin that you struggle with and go, yeah, I know why I'm struggling? Either you don't care. You don't, there's something about the, the depressing state of life at times that we don't understand. David, David cries out in Psalm 42, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And then David asks the question, Why are you cast down, O my soul? He doesn't understand. But then he preaches to himself, because every good Christian's got to preach to themselves. And he says, he says this, he says, Hope in God. Put your hope in God. And understand that the very thing that causes your grief will be the thing, it'll be the thing that brings you joy. We serve a God who wants to take your sorrow and turn it to great joy. Tribulation should not surprise you. You shouldn't be shocked by it. You shouldn't be overwhelmed or taken back by it. In fact, 1 Peter 4.12, he tells us, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. You've got to like biblical words. Tribulation, fiery trial. See, there's, there's pain in life. It's going to happen. I think most of us know this. And there's five ways. If you're a note taker, there's five ways you can deal with your pain. Four of them are utterly unhelpful. <laughs> the first thing you can do, one, or one way you can deal with your pain, is you can forget the sorrow. You can attempt to forget the sorrow and the pain. This typically comes through the the form of chemicals, narcotics, or some form of pleasure. But you can try to to forget it by numbing the mind. And and anybody who's ever struggled with substance abuse, you know that substance abuse doesn't actually deal with the sorrow and the pain. It just actually adds sorrow and pain, more of it down the road. It's like heaping more pain on pain. A second way you can uh, uh, deal with pain is you can avoid the pain. You can try to run from the problem, to move on or ignore the problem. Uh, I've seen this over the years. People who've said, I'm just going to move. I I know one gal actually, to deal with her pain, she literally has moved from Seattle to Arizona to back east to Reno, back to Truckee again. 
all in the hopes of if, if I just change my location, if I change my locale, if I do these certain things, it will, the pain and the sorrow I feel, the emptiness I have, I can deal with it. The problem with that is wherever uh, you go, your pain follows you. Because wherever you go, well, you go. <laughs> Number three, you can deny the pain. You can tell yourself, it's not a big deal, it won't be this way forever. You can, you can to, to an extent, just, just pretend it, it doesn't exist. You can deny it. And number four, you can just let it crush you. I've seen this happen in people's lives. You isolate yourself. You allow darkness to consume you. You won't be around people. You won't come to church. You won't read your Bible. You won't pray to God. You just stay in your bed. Why get up? You just let the sorrow overwhelm to the point of suicidal thoughts or cutting yourself or dealing with it with some other way. You just let it crush you. Or the fifth option is you can let Jesus overshadow the sorrow like a baby in a mother's arms. There's this tremendous quote that says it this way. Christians are far more pessimistic than other folks. In other words, they are far more realistic about evil. They are realistic about the suffering in this world. They are realistic about the fragmentation and the brokenness of it. They're never surprised. They never have to tell themselves little stories that say, this is just an anomaly. They know this is exactly what life is made of. On the other hand, Christians have a truth that overshadows it, that when they focus on it, like the woman looking at her baby, it overwhelms. A Christian says, look, the world is just as bad as this. I'm not going to try to numb my mind to it. I'm not going to try to tell myself little stories to try to get out from underneath the weight of it. But I have a truth. I have the gospel, the message of Christ. What is that? Is it, the, is it true that, that God's son came to earth? Did he die to pay my debts? Does he now live to put his glory in me? Does he now reign in heaven to control all things for me and all of history? Is he returning to judge the living and the dead and to put everything right? If that's true, then I have a truth that overshadows the problems. These problems, as bad as they are, are going to end someday. These troubles, as bad as they are, have a consolation that is stronger than them. Don't you see? Christians are more pessimistic and are, are, more, and are more optimistic than everybody else about life. See, the Christian faith is not a faith that removes you from the world and tries to tell you, like the prosperity gospel that is preached so often in so many churches, come to Jesus, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, he'll remove your depression, he'll make everything right. No, 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 no. Christianity is about this is the reality, the ballast of the ship. These days are dark. The world is dark. People are suffering. People are filled with sin. And yet we have a hope that is beyond this world. But I, I saw a thing this week that said, Kim Kardashian's will states that when she comes to a place where she cannot speak, a coma of some sort, that she wants to make sure her makeup and hair are still done. <laughs> That's the kind of hope the world gives. We don't have that kind of hope as Christians Guess what, ladies? I don't want to be the first one to tell you. You're not always going to look physically beautiful. <laughs> this is where I get myself in trouble. 
I will always be beautiful. We are bodies. This body, this suit will decay. It will be eaten by worms and dirt. But your hope is not in this flesh, but in the resurrected body that Jesus will give you. In a little while, Jesus says, in a little while, you will see me again. The hope for us as Christians is that Jesus indeed, friends, this is such good news, he will take the thing that was actually filled with suffering and depression for you, and he will resurrect it again to something new. One of the things that we see in regards to, to, uh, to our suffering as Christians is that it produces intimacy. I know that sometimes it doesn't always like make everything feel better all the time, but, but when you go through suffering, it, it, it usually does one of two things. It, it either drives you away from God and puts you into a place of bitterness, or it drives you into the arms of God. It drives you into to the parental loving Father, and it produces a, a new kind of life and intimacy that you didn't have before. And Jesus says it in the text. He, he says, whatever you ask, he's talking about a prayer life. He says, truly, uh, truly I say to you, this is what John keeps Reiterating time and time again without the go- throughout the gospel, this emphasis of truly, truly, look, look, this is something you got to pay attention to. I say to you, whatever you ask in the, in the name of the Father, he will give it to you. He's saying your sorrow, it's going to turn into joy, but the reason it's going to be joy-filled is because it's going to produce prayer life for you, intimacy with God. Isn't that true? Isn't that so true of you and I? When we go through a struggle... See, so, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a church is for the church to go through only good stuff. Because you get all this good stuff and you forget God. You just forget you need him. You're your own savior. You see Israel doing this. What? I am so tired of food falling from heaven. This is ridiculous. At least we had meat over there when we were slaves. Isn't it true? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is for nothing bad to go wrong. And then, and then God can use something huge and devastating, or he can use something small and irritating to remind you you need a God. You need a comforter of your soul. And you need to put your hope in something everlasting. It produces intimacy. It produces effective prayer. Or uh, as stupid as it is, this is the difference between my wife and I. Our washing machine broke this uh, cup, uh, two days ago. Now, in a family of six, that is a crisis. And um, we had to take this huge basket of wet clothes and put it in the garage and pray, you know, don't let it freeze. And I'm, I'm doing what any typical male would do in the situation, aggressively trying to fix it. And at one point, my wife sees my frustration, and she just stops me. She doesn't say anything to me. She, doesn't, she just stops me, puts her hand on me, puts her hands on the washing machine, and she starts to pray to God. Jesus, we don't need another expense. Could you please fix our washing machine? Now, the washing machine is uh, still broken. God didn't say, oh, ha! 
Let there be clean clothes. Didn't happen. But the idea, though, is that, that even the littlest things should drive us back into the intimate hands of the Father. Suffering produces intimacy. It produces the promised love of the Father. And Jesus says, he says, the Father himself loves you. The Bible teaches that nothing, tribulation, hardship, depression, anger, frustration, your own sin, none of it can keep you from the promised promised love of the Father. And the Bible tells us what this love looks like from Jesus. In 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Did you hear it? Love isn't that you have loved God. Has anyone in the room perfectly loved God? Don't go, no. You haven't. So the Bible says that's not what love is, but love is that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Everyone say propitiation. I don't know if you know what that word means. But the word literally means, the definition of it is is a propitiation, is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. The gospel is that God Almighty took out his frustration and his sorrow towards sin and put it upon the Son so it wouldn't be put upon you. He became your substitute. The gospel is that you, you deserve the wrath of God. You deserve the punishment. You deserve whatever it is, unfortunately, that Stephen Hawking is going through right now. And yet Jesus came to take that punishment on your behalf, that you would become the great righteousness of God. And then he tells us, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And so again, we're told to love because he first loved us. You see, there's this, I think I I might have this on a slide here. This is beautiful. Your steady hope, this pastor says, your steady, solid hope this morning, and it is the only lasting hope, is that if you will trust trust Christ as your precious Savior and your supremely valued King, then you will be folded into the love of God in a way that no terrorist, no torture, no demons, no disasters, no disease, no man, no microbe, no government, and no grave can destroy. That's the hope of this text. That's the hope of the Christian life. It's not a political hope. It's not a military hope. It's not a financial hope. It's not a geographical hope. It's not a psychological hope or an escapist hope. It is a blood-bought, spirit-wrought, Christ-exalting, God-centered, fear-destroying, death-defeating hope. We have something that the world is desperate for, something that the world needs. We have it in this building, and it shouldn't just stay here, should it? It should go out to a hurting world that is doing everything it can to deal with its own depression, its own frustrations, its own anxieties, its own angers. It's doing everything it can to find a way to deal. And we have the joy that surpasses, surpasses knowledge in Jesus Christ. You see, this hope, Jesus tells us, he sums it up. He says, he says hey, verse 33, look, I've said these things to you. Why? That in me you may have peace. And then he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. There's the guarantee. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've defeated it. Jesus is saying, all the things that are in the world, he's removed your sin. He's conquered death. 
He's conquered the world. And he's telling us now in this verse that the word he says, take heart. Everyone say, take heart. You know what that means? Be courageous. To, to piggyback a little bit on last week's message, this you got to have courage. you got to be a person of courage. you got to take heart. The world's been dealt with. Satan's been dealt with for you. When he looks at you and he tries to beat you up and he tries to make you depressed and he, he's trying to make you angry, you just look back at him and say, I've got Jesus, bro. Back off of me. I have God. I have his promises. And we've got to just drill this into our minds, the goodness and the greatness of Jesus, the ability that God has to take your pain and the very thing that caused you pain to make it your joy. Take heart and be courageous. This means as a church, just some practical things for us here. It means you've got to share your faith, doesn't it? You can't, just, you can't just talk about evangelism. You gotta live it. You gotta tell your friends about Jesus. They need it. You have to tell your coworkers, even the ones you don't like. Love your enemies, you know? You gotta tell them about Jesus. You know your mom who doesn't know Jesus? Keep telling her, man. Keep praying for her. Don't give up. Be courageous. You know your dad who hasn't come to faith? That aunt, that uncle, that brother, that sister, that spouse? Keep going to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Share the gospel. Share the good news. Share your hope. They might get frustrated. They might get angry. They might get bothered by you. But share it. And for goodness sake, come together as a church and celebrate it. Celebrate. Right? Joe and I, our children's director, we were going to Tacos Jalisco, which is now my great source of joy. And um, there was a gal there that, that... has been to church here a couple times. She doesn't know who Jesus is. We ended up in a real long conversation with her, and at one point, I I think it was Joe, we'll give Joe the credit, he said, you should come to church. And her response was, oh, oh, the outdoors is my church. No. It's kind of a popular thing to say in the Tahoe area. The outdoors, the great outdoors, that's my church. Just so you know, no. No. No, absolutely, defiantly, no. The great outdoors has been created by God for the glory of God, to declare God. God can use the great outdoors to even be an evangelical tool to reach people for Jesus Christ. That's how Jim Rippey got saved. Great snowboarder who's top on top of a mountain and he looked out and he said, there's gotta be a God. We're told that, that God, again, to, to start full circle, that God danced. He frolicked when he made that creation. And he made it so you would enjoy it and you would declare his goodness in it. But it is not church. The church is the gathering of God's people declaring as a family the goodness of God. We are commanded in Hebrews to not forsake the gathering of the saints, which is the habit of some, he says. It's been a first century church problem. All the way from the very beginning, there have been people who just didn't come to church. And, and, and we're told in Hebrews, uh, yeah, don't be those people. Now, I know I'm the senior pastor of the church, and of course you're going to say that because you want people to come to church. And, well, the answer to that is, yeah, I do. I absolutely do because I care. I care about God, and I care about God's people, and I care about the Truckee area. I want to see more people come to Jesus Christ. 
And the reality is, is that we are commanded for our benefit, for our good, to gather together with God's people. And I have seen it time and time again. There is always a correlation with a lack of attendance at church with life and the depressing state of life. doesn't make you not saved. I'm not telling you that, that if you don't come to church, you're not saved. And I definitely don't want to guilt you into coming. Well, my life's going to suck if I don't go to church. That's what Jesse said. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying if you want to get more out of your Christian faith and you want to get more out of God, you've got to do the things that God called us to do. And there's a reason why he says, yeah, guess what? You've got to come together and you've got as a family to worship me in song and worship me under the preaching of my word. It's all worship. Every single one of us right now as we are hearing the goodness of God, that is an act of worship. We are worshiping him. And we're being reminded that he's a good God and he loves us and he died for our sins. And we dare not be like the rest of the world who doesn't come together to worship him. I saw a tagline for a church the other day that said, come, come check out how casual we are about our faith. We're so laid back about our Christianity. And we want to be laid back. I get that. We're in the tall area. Okay, we want to be cool. Say dude and bro and whatever. But at the same time, we stand during the preaching of God's word because it's God's speech. And we worship and we sing and we actually take time and energy to get our butts to church because it shows the world that we're different. There's something different about us. We have to live like that. We have to act like it. And that means that we actually have to say, yeah, you know what? There's 10 feet of snow outside. I'm still going to church. It's cold. It'll get warm in here. The more people we fit in this room, the warmer it gets. And then during summer, we turn on the AC for you. Your pastor, whether it's me or anyone else, we are not here to entertain you. There's a quote on our Facebook page. I am not an actor. And our worship leaders are not rock stars. We come to worship the God who gives us joy in the midst of our sorrow. And that should make us want to dance, should it not? God, give me, give me more of you. And you know the answer to getting more of God isn't God giving more of himself to you. It's you giving more of you to God. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. I want this place on a Sunday to be the place that people say, we've got to go hear about God again. I've been forgetting all week long, and I need someone to beat it into my head. And you know, Jesse and Wayne, they're just the right guys for it. We'll do it to you physically, and we'll do it to you spiritually. You're just going to get Jesus in there one way or another. Right? And here's the deal. I heard a guy say it this week, and it bears repeating, and we'll close in prayer. We're not asking you to follow a religion, and we're not asking you to be religious, and we're not asking you to follow the name Sierra Bible Church. We're asking you to follow Jesus. And we're asking you to start telling more people to follow Jesus, to see that we're not all about all the weird church things. We're about Jesus. We're about Jesus. Oh, man, I want... Jesus to be a bigger part of my life. Lord, show me how to do that. And Lord, would you, would you do the one thing that, that he's told us time and time again now in John? Be obedient. You know what, church? I want to give you all the grace in the world. 
I want you to just gobble it up to the point where it just, it's just the idea of it, it's radical and it's crazy. But I would not be doing the right thing if I didn't call you to obedience. Once the words have gone out, your job as a loving child is to be obedient. You've got to share your faith. You have to tell people about Jesus. And you've got to come to church and you've got to worship. Amen? All right, I'll see you all next week then. You're here. Thanks for signing up. With a friend. <laughs> we'll see who really does it. Oh, man, really twist the knife in there. Let's pray. Lord, give us courage. Give us strength of mind, confidence, hopefulness, strength of purpose that enables us to withstand in the face of fear, depression, sadness, frustration, anger, anxiety. Lord, allow us to, through your Spirit, be strengthened to not be crushed by our sorrow, to try to avoid the pain, but instead would you allow Jesus to overshadow it like a mother with her baby in her arms. Let us run to you. Let us find hope in you. Lord, allow us to give more of ourselves to you. We thank you for our time together as a family to worship you, that you have ordained a day for us to gather together under your goodness and under your message of grace. Empower us now as we sing to love you as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we close in song, would you all uh, stand and worship with us corporately as we have been called to do? Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. your regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Oh, come to the altar.
forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior! Isn't He wonderful? Sing Alleluia, Christ is risen. Bow down before Him, for He is Lord of all. Sing Alleluia, Christ is risen. Again to him. Oh, what a savior! Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah! Christ is risen. Bow down before him, for he is Lord. The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Lord Jesus, thank you for the treasure we have in you, Lord. Come. Come and enter in, Lord, and just let us worship you. Amen. Have a wonderful week.